Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Curzon Film Podcast. We have an absolutely bumper show today where we have not one but two interviews and all the usual pitches and Curzon Home Cinema recommends. There is only time for first names today. Hello to Sam. Hello. Hello to Ursie. Hello. I'm Harry. Let's move on with the pitches. <laughs> right, so we are talking about three, three different films today. So the pitch is as follows. If you could take three films and merge them to create one super film, what would that film be? Remember, you get extra marks for the title. And we're going to start with Ursi. No, okay. (laughs) (laughs) No! So bad. Anyway, no, 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 I'm good at pitching. I'm good at pitching. So uh, my choice... Uh, was go- it's going to be a little bit lowbrow, I have to say, but it's going to be a great, great film okay. at the end. So uh, I decided to merge three Nicolas Cage movies because that's what they need. Someone's won the points. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided to go for Ghost Rider. Okay. Raising Arizona. Yep. And Bringing Out the Dead. And the movie itself is going to be Ghost Rider has had enough of being really somber and depressed and decides that wherever he goes now, instead of rock and roll, he was going to have a yodeler at the back of his bike, and he was going to go out and go to orphanages all over the States and um, cheer up all the little kids. Until one time, he decides to steal one. Oh. And then it becomes his sidekick to battle the ghosts that are hunting him. So do we approve of him stealing in this version of the film? Well, he's the ghostwriter, so technically, whatever we do, he's going to do whatever he right. wants. So, and, and just in case Nicolas Cage's agent is listening, is he going to get three separate checks still? Because <laughs> he may or may not need the money, according to certain reports. Well, I think after that, uh, what was the movie that he did uh, where the poster is him on a donkey looking for Osama Bin Laden? I think after that movie, maybe he needs three separate checks. Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. because yeah. that was not <laughs> what? good. Okay, so yes, <laughs> yes, that exists. Wow. <laughs> Why didn't you pitch that movie? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's already out. Somebody gave money. Excellent. So have you got a title for I this do. Film? Okay, what's Ooh. the title? Ghost Rider 3, Raising the Dead. Oh, oh well played. 
a lovely start. Sam, lovely. we're going to move on to you. Okay. <clears throat> so at the end of Die Hard, Hans Gruber falls out of a building and dies. Or does he? He dun, faked dun, dun. his... He, well, it turns out he faked his death, guys. Okay? Uh-huh. And uh, just went into retirement and has lived a quiet life up until now. So he's living in uh, in Florida, let's say. He runs a... Uh, he runs a bar in Florida, Hans yep. Gruber. Um, Why in Florida? You just It's just where old people go in America to retire, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, I've got a head. big question, but I'm going to let you finish your pitch. <laughs> okay. Uh, meanwhile, in an alternative dimension where wizards are real, Professor Snake has, <laughs> has also faked his death and he's gone into retirement and he thinks I, he's, he's I, done with the wizarding world. Okay, I've got another question okay. regarding that, but I'll let you continue. He's, he's done with the wizarding world and he thinks the only way to sort of really relax is to go into a reality where there are no wizards. So he does that. But he's bored there being the only wizard. So he thinks, you know what, I'm just going to try and take this over. I'm going to try and take over the world. I'm a wizard, I can easily do it. And uh, he does this, he clones himself. So there are many different Snapes now, trying to wizard Snapes trying to take over the <laughs> world. And Hans Gruber, he thinks, no, I'll sit this one out. Like, I'm retired. I can't get involved. He's getting too old for that stuff. He's getting too old, but he just... No, I just... I've just got to... I really need to... I really need to do something. So he calls on his old nemesis, John McClane, to try and stop the Snapes. (laughs) So the third film comes to play in the title. You ready? Yep. Yep. Die Hard 6, Rise of the Planet of the Snapes. Nice. (laughs) Well... Play. Thank you. Um, I don't have anything in my notes to respond to that, so we're going to leave that there. Okay, my my one is really simple. I basically worked backwards. I found one word that links them all, mm-hmm. and then created a plot around that. Mm-hmm. So the word that links them all is iron. We have iron giant, the fantastic cartoon that is still fantastic Mm -hmm. we have Iron Man Tony Stark himself we have the Iron Lady Margaret Thatcher this film creates one giant iron billionaire prime minister the Iron Giant Man Lady (laughs) the twist is it tries to take over the whole world. The world. The world. And the only thing that can stop it are Labour backbenchers. <laughs> <laughs> Mickey Rourke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have and, him, I remember and itself. Because the Iron Giant doesn't really have like a nemesis. It's, it's sort of nemesis is itself. Mm. So... Then somehow the Labour backbenchers, Mickey Rourke... Have their own Iron Giant. And maybe Sir Ben Kingsley, if we can get him. Sir Ben, why not? Sir Mm. Ben. Maybe they have to convince the Iron Man lady to not take over the world and just take over Britain. I have a a question. Okay. Is the Iron Giant man lady married to Jim Broadbent in this scenario as well? I think the first thing that happens is... It's about 25 minutes of a divorce scene oh. <laughs> between Broadbent I was hoping the, uh, it would just, they'd just squash him. <laughs> that's how it ultimately ends. Right. And, okay. um, and that's why the Iron Giant Man Lady is so furious. Yeah. Because um, 
it turns out if you kill your spouse, you don't get any of the money. Uh, oh, it's loophole. So it's a really, it's a really difficult time yeah. for this giant being. Well, Impressive. I have no questions about that. That <laughs> good, will make sense good. to me. Okay, lovely. Uh, I want to. I think I want to see the Nicolas Cage trio of films. <laughs> I want I Iron Man Lady. You want, oh, I want to see Snakes. Oh, I want to see Snakes. That's all, nice. Let's deciding vote. As host, do I get the deciding vote? I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, well, I'm obviously going to go for <laughs> the one I voted for. Ursi wins the point. Yay! So we go. Weinstein's I'm coming it's a uh, democracy it's a crooked system <laughs> it is anyway uh, crooked l- Harry the majority of one <laughs> lovely before we get into uh, the first review of the day let me just tell you what we have uh, coming up so we have uh, the documentary I Am Not Your Negro uh, where I have interviewed uh, the director Raoul Peck and there will be a review from me and Ursi. We then have uh, the, a new film called Raw which Sam interviewed the director and will also be yep. reviewing. We will also be previewing the new Pablo Lorraine film Neruda uh, and talking about uh, some of the films on his collection on Curzon Home Cinema. Uh, so a lot of great stuff coming up. Excellent. So first up we have I I Am Not Your Negro, a documentary that revolves around uh, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King and their and their assassinations, all through the uh, narrative voice of James Baldwin. Uh, I was fortunate enough to interview the director, Raoul Peck, uh, the other day. Um, apologies, the audio might not be uh, fantastic on this uh, clip, uh, but please bear with it. He was a really interesting, uh, interesting guy and gave some really good insights into his view of James Baldwin, the film, and sort of how it came about. So uh, enjoy that. So I am honoured to welcome our Raoul Peck, our director of I Am Not Your Negro, to the Curzon Film Podcast. Raoul, how are we doing today? I'm fine. You're I'm fine. You're fine. He's getting there. He's getting there. He's getting there. So what I really wanted to do is ask you first, it's obviously based on works of James Baldwin, but it's not based on one book or one particular piece of work by him. It's lots of different... Sort of, you even said bits of notes and unfinished work. Do you want to? Do you mind just going in a bit more about how you kind of put this together and how you put this sort of documentary together? Yes. Well, uh, first of all, that's probably one of the rare instances where you start a film (laughs) without knowing exactly what the film is going to be. Yeah. For me, the the first item was how do I bring James Baldwin back to the front line? You know, that was my, my motivation, that was the initial idea. Without knowing exactly what kind of film it would become. Uh, I, I spent several years after I gathered the rights uh, to find you know, which would be the more efficient form. Yeah. You know, so it, it's a kind of freedom that you have, but that freedom makes it even more difficult. Yes. Uh, because basically you, you just know the choice you're going to make is, is going to be definitive. Yes. Uh, so, and, and you're not formed. Some, you know, some film subjects, you, you know instinctively that it's going to be a narrative or it's better as a documentary. For that particular subject, anything could go. And I just needed the most efficient one. And uh, and deciding to go for the documentary was key because I knew that first I could produce it myself and I could take whatever time is necessary 
So you got freedom I, there. Yes, I, I gave myself that freedom. Excellent. Because the one thing I knew is this is not a film that you can have uh, to have permanent discussion, discussion with uh, anybody, yes. e even people that would, you know, be uh, good about listening to. But I really needed that uh, freedom because I had to overcome my own fragility or, or my own doubt about certain things. Yep. So, and for that, uh, time is important, and also um, financial independence yep. is important. Uh, so you don't want to have somebody on uh, over your shoulder every uh, you know six months coming you know Raul where is the film yeah. and then you have to uh, carry on to make sure you finish the film when the the film itself is not finished. Yeah. yeah. So I, I try to protect myself uh, of all those those uh, uh, possible uh, threat or or pressure. Okay. And and then uh, I slowly find the form. You know, I it took time until I got my hands on those yep. 30 pages of, of the manuscript of notes on remember this house yep. uh, if I had rushed into making a narrative like I wanted or a sort of mixed form like I wanted at some point uh, I would not have made the film the way I, I made okay. it yep. so time was in the essence and uh, so um, and then I had a through those pages, I had a very genuine, organic entry to Baldwin's mind. Yes. You know, basically, you know, a book that was not written. Yeah. And so you, as a filmmaker, you are going after that book, you know, and you have to piece that book together. And it's an incredible adventure. Yeah, it must be. You know, and, and, but I could also uh, claim that because I felt that I knew Baldwin uh, very profoundly. You know, he, he was part of my life, yep. basically all my adult life. Yes, know, yeah. I, I read it very early on. So, uh, you know, when I say the film took 10 years, but in fact, I should add it took the 30 years yeah. prior okay. as well. Great. So you said you started... You started becoming aware, you say in the introduction, because you've done a book version that goes with the film, uh, and you said in the introduction of that, you sort of came to Bob when you were about 15, is that right? Later, I think it was Come. 17, 18, okay. around that um, So for a sort of UK audience that might not know James Baldwin, how would you sort of describe his, his impact, particularly in sort of the United States of America, how would you describe his sort of influence and where, what he does? Uh, well, first of all, I would say they should read James yeah, Baldwin. Yeah, yeah, I'd that, agree with that's that. the first thing. <laughs> uh, and I would recommend to read uh, uh, The Fire Next Time okay. as, as an incredible book. Uh, people know now better Tanashi Coates, yep. uh, who have written a similar book. But uh, uh, the, uh, the, the Fire Next Time is for me, uh, was a very important book for yep. me uh, to read as a young man. And um, and yes, wh why? Because he's again, um, he was one of the rare uh, human being, uh, intellectual writer who really helped me understand the world I was living in. Uh, you know, uh, the, at the time there were not so many writers where you felt totally at home as a young black man. Yep. Uh, and Baldwin was that, even though he was not uh, only important 
to young black men, but to a lot of young white uh, uh, men who were also looking for an explanation yep. of their of their life. Uh, and I've made, I've uh, got a lot of feedback from people from audiences who told me, you know, how Baldwin was key in their life. Yes. You know, white young white men today or older men telling me, yes, he, they also read Baldwin very early on in their life, and that changed their life. Mm. So he, that's what Baldwin uh, can do to you. And uh, and he, in, for me personally, he helped me structure my thoughts, structure my my analysis. Uh, he helped me see the world as a, as an incredible. Uh, I would say not mystery, but uh, miracle. Okay. With all its contradiction. Yeah. There, there is a sentence I like when that way he said, you know, every human being is is a miracle, and and I and I try to to respect and love that miracle uh, that they are, and at the same time to protect myself from the monsters they have become. Yeah. Okay. So this tells you everything about Baldwin's yeah. philosophy. Yeah. And, and that's how I try to live my life through that. Uh, Philosophical yeah. uh, motto, you know. Right, because he kind of he talks about yeah. I'm gonna find he he says about Malcolm X during and it and it's in the in the actual film. He says uh, this is a part of the quote. He said he he tells them that they really exist. You know. Yes. Do you do you find the same with James Baldwin? Do you find James Baldwin has that almost has that message for you about existing oh, yes. in your place in the world? And oh, oh yes, Baldwin is he has a way to speak to you whether you are an intellectual or you are a worker or a woman or somebody with not a lot of education because he finds the word that, that uh, goes right through your minds and your heart at the same time. Yeah. He speaks to both. Uh, and, he, and, and you get that because he speaks from his own experience. You know, he takes himself as the as the element of analysis. Yeah. You know, he tells you about his own uh, uh, judgment uh, about what he went through or what his family went through. So he's very convincing. Yeah. And there are not many people who can, you know, use language the way he, he does it. You know, for for a young fourteen year old preacher because he was a preacher at fourteen. You know, to be yeah. able to talk to adults about their soul, about their their questions, about their fear yeah. of life. You know, to have done that when you were fourteen, you know, just armed with the Bible. Yeah. The New Testament is is incredible. Yeah. And I think that changed that changed his life. And and that's why he is able to change ours today. And the incredible thing is those things that at the time in the sixties when I read them uh, were incredible is that today they are still incredible. Yes, yeah. You know, that's that's the, the most weirdest aspect of it, you know. It, it, these words did not, uh, you know, grow old. They, they became even more relevant yeah. today. It's about, you know, every human being has to be responsible for its own life. You know, we can't go on like this and thinking that, well, I cannot do anything about my situation, whether I'm privileged or not. No, you have to find your place in your society 
and defend what you think is is right to defend. And Baldwin just give you the whole analysis, put it on the table, and ask you, you know, now it's your job. Whether or not you react to it, this is your responsibility. But you cannot say that you don't know anymore. Yeah. You can't pretend that you don't know, there is nothing to do, or it's not your fault. You know, we are all involved in that one history. Yeah. We are part of that unique history. There, is, there are not a multiply of history. Everything is linked. Whatever we do here uh, in Europe or in London is linked to whatever we have done in the past or whatever we are doing right now in the, I don't know, in the Middle East, to take one, one example. You know, everything is linked, you know, our societies are linked. Yeah, it's not separate. Uh, we're not all exa separate. Exactly. We're, we're one sort of so world. So everything that happened have consequences and we need to see those consequences. Uh, and, and maybe try to, to make it better. But uh, we can't go on, you know, everybody in its own little bubble. And, and, and it has gotten worse the, those last 30 years, where, you know, we became all, you know, two-person family and bubble, and maybe with a group of friends added yes. to that, and we all have our, our iPhone, or tweet and all that and we think that we are communicating with the world but we are not in fact our circle have come you know smaller and smaller uh, and and we we don't see that we are being cut from the reality of the world and and that's what makes problems uh, harder to solve okay great and in terms of in terms of, I just want to go slightly towards the narrative of the film, because I guess the main sort of narrative or the central, what seems to be the central part of the film is, is the assassinations of uh, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X and Medgar Evers. Now, I think probably everyone in the UK has definitely heard of Martin Luther King and definitely heard of Malcolm X. But in terms of Medgar Evers, they might not have heard that yeah. name before. The film sort of starts with saying about these three yeah. really important men. How important is he within that, within the sort of well, that's narrative the of the incredible, whole film? incredible uh, mind of Baldwin to reunite those three people who are three very different leaders. Yes. And Medgar Evers, of course, being the one that is less known because he was killed the first and very early on, before the fight was so, uh, you know, popular or so well known. But uh, the intelligence of linking those three men gave us also three different aspects of the way the civil rights was perceived and still perceived, you know, uh, because Medgar was active in the South. He was, you know, he started by, you know, doing inquiries and trying to uh, bring people to vote. Well, you, you, know, you see a bit where they tour around exactly, together, don't you? Exactly. See Baldwin and, and, and then touring the around first together. Yep. Etc. And um, Martin Luther King was perceived as the preacher, the nonviolent preacher, uh, until now, which is, of course, totally false because the last two years of his life he was a very radical uh, yep. uh, preacher. By the way, today is the anniversary of his famous speech that he made at the uh, uh, St. Uh, John the Divine in New York against the Vietnam War, where he said very strong words against the war and uh, against poverty and the fact that the war was draining money from uh, yeah. the, the yeah. country that they really needed. 
uh, and they were killing people elsewhere. So this part of Martin Luther King, we want to forget. You know? And the same, we want to keep Malcolm X as the racist torch that he was at some time and forget that in the later years of his life, before he was killed, he had distanced himself from the nation of Islam, that he, he became a statement, that he became, uh, he, he had lived, left the race issue to come to a class issue, to a real analysis yeah. of his society, and that both became closer Yeah, 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 together. we say that in the film. And, I think and it's, that's yeah, the I think aspect we don't want to remember. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, nobody know, and that was the genius of Baldwin to put that back yeah. on the table and to show it and to show it why those men were dangerous for the system alright fascinating thank you that's all we've got time for right. but uh, thanks a lot for joining us today well, thank, you. thank you cheers thank you excellent so that was uh, Raoul Peck talking to me just a few days ago uh, and let's jump straight in uh, to the uh, to the review I guess mm. um, so Ursu what were your initial thoughts when you when you watched this I've seen, I've seen, I've, I've studied uh, the civil rights movement uh, mostly in, in, well, in school and university, like a lot of people might have, and uh, I recently saw as well the Oscar-winning documentary O.J. Made in America mm. as well. Uh, this was, was Oscar-nominated as well. This was, yeah. And this, I'm Not Your Negro, is a completely different kettle of fish, in my opinion, because the... James Baldwin is credited as the writer, but obviously did not contribute to this documentary physically. So they took his unfinished manuscript, Remember This House, and they layered his prose over clips of different instant, different phases of um, the Amer American history with regards to race relations and slavery. And it was, I thought it was one of the most interesting Films. I can't even describe it as a proper documentary because I don't think it actually tries to be a documentary. I think it tries to be a, a, a feature film, really. And um, yeah, I think that's what hmm. that's what Raoul Peck sort of said in when I was talking to him that he didn't want it just to be one thing and be pigeonholed and and forced to go a certain direction. Hmm. And he was he said, fortunately, and he mentioned that he was able to have that freedom and didn't have the pressure of a studio and it's and you can really tell it's a real passion project for him yeah. and it's a life's work that he's put into it and so therefore it doesn't feel like sort of every doc oh not every documentary but a typical documentary yeah, absolutely and it has real nice sort of stylistic choices that it goes down mm -hmm. it has a complete mix of sort of the images from when Baldwin was writing to completely t contemporary images and it feels really modern and up to date even though it's words of a man that you know he he actually died 30 years ago yeah 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 in the, Which, in the 80s I think yeah yeah uh, no most of his writing is still very much um, applies to race relations not even just in the states sometimes but mostly in in America and what's happening over there right now and I think that as a as a voice, I, I trusted him a lot more than I would have trusted, say, a civil rights activist or a politician for some reason. What did you think of him as a as an actual narr well, based on what did you think of his work, um, which was the, the the entire basis of the film? I think I think 
Baldwin himself is so aware of being a witness mm. and so aware of and you know during the film and I mentioned it during the interview that he's so aware of watching things and having this guilt of watching things and then moving on that you trust him as a narrator because he's critical of himself yeah and I think that that's where the real strength of the film comes from Baldwin is so aware of his position in the world and his position of where he is and so passionate about where he wants to go and he's so articulate during the film you you it I noticed the stylistic choices that that Raoul made was that he whenever Baldwin's talking there's hardly ever music over the top yeah. of it there's hardly there's often not images often he co- focuses the camera on these sort of old interviews that he's been given and you but it never feels dull his face lights up when he's talking about mm-hmm. dif- when Baldwin's talking about different issues and it feels so contemporary because of that because you see the passion of the man the words you're hearing um, and that that's where I think Samuel Jackson does a really great job as, as the narrator of the film and yes. bringing bringing the words to life. Yeah, Samuel Jackson. I think we 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 talked about this before. We were struggling to remember that he was actually the narrator yeah. because this is he doesn't just do voiceovers now in documentaries. You get you get an up and coming celebrity to voiceover whatever social political kind of documentary you have. Here, it's not. Samuel Samuel Jackson is not just lending his voice to it. He's giving a full blown performance, yeah. a performance that I haven't to the stand to uh, to a level that I haven't seen him give in a very very long time. And he's not even on screen. Yeah, and, and, and but it's quite understated as well. That's mm. that's the really important thing. And also, I was really worried when the film started and you saw a clip of Baldwin talking mm-hmm. that we were then going to hear some sort of hammy impression of Baldwin mimicking him trying to create the author's and the writer's voice but we don't get that at all we get we get a sincere narration that actually helps the film go along and at times you don't even notice it you don't you particularly don't notice that that it's Samuel Jackson no no absolutely not speaking he uh I think understated is the perfect uh description for for this for this voiceover and it's so it's so nostalgic. It's, I think it contrasts very well with when you have Baldwin on the screen uh, giving either in the debate in Cambridge, because there's two predominant clips. There's his debate in Cambridge yep. uh, against William F. Buckley Jr. And then there's his appearance in the Dick Cavett show. And in both of those clips, he I mean, he almost raises from his seat yes. when not provoked, but when given a, a, an argument and he's, his polemic is fantastic. And the prose is amazing, but then you have Samuel L. Jackson, whose tone is lower; it's it's calmer. So you have a very interesting contrast between two voices that are effectively ex- from the same coming from the same source. Well, I think, and I think that's why the documentary is then able to put images over over the narration, mm-hmm. and you're able to concentrate on both because there is this understatement, and the images complement what's being said by Baldwin himself and actually it would have taken away from the interviews if it had cut to loads of different images while Baldwin himself is talking yeah. because you want to see him nearly rising from his seat and and getting angry and he has this sort of control about him when he's 
being challenged. There's one scene in particular where someone comes out and directly challenges him, another guest on a chat show. That scene is fantastic. And and the, But what, what Raoul Peck does is he holds the camera on that scene and doesn't let doesn't try and cut away to other stuff going on. He lets that mm-hmm. scene play out and then moves on to the next thing. Yeah. And I think I think the timing of this film is beautiful for that reason. Yeah. And uh, that scene, I, 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 well, obviously, I had to stop and replay it in my head over and over and over again because this is James Baldwin belongs to that school of don't really want to say orators because he doesn't really do that on a public forum. He he's he's an he's a born debater. He yes. is uh, he is he doesn't whilst he doesn't have the the ideals and the orating skills of somebody like Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or Medgar Evers, he holds his own in pretty every single time I saw clips of him, I was hooked on every single word he was saying and he he can he manages to communicate his ideas and his ideology, sorry, uh, very clearly from the beginning. And he says Malcolm X uh, may have these views on white people. Martin Luther King has this view on white people. Medgar Evers has this. I do not hate the white man, but I have my problems with yeah. him. And then it kind of shoots off from there. Well, and I think I think that comes from, you know, during the interview it mentions, you know, Raoul, and you don't see this in the documentary, mentions Baldwin as sort of a young preacher and mentions the fact that he gets away and, mo- and moves away from America and the importance of that and that how that gives him a voice and how actually I think Baldwin is really interesting during the beginning of the film it says there's sort of three extraordinary men mm-hmm. that get assassinated but this film really has four extraordinary men the four yeah. extraordinary men James Baldwin is one of those men Absolutely. and should now be seen I think probably in those regards yeah. and be held up and, and to you know when you hear Raoul Peck talk about this passion project and this film it makes you realise how important James Baldwin is and and if you know if people are listening and don't know who James Baldwin is or haven't read any of his stuff Raoul gave a recommendation dur- during the interview yeah. but watch this film because you will get an understanding of of how crucial he is to sort of the the experience of America at the time for yeah. him. It's amazing how history always remembers what people are witnessing yeah. rather than the witnesses yeah. themselves and he is very much a part of that and um, yeah I think it's also another wonderful reason to go and see this film is its use of Baldwin's experiences while going to the cinema yes. and yeah. forming initial opinions about white people which I think is 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 obviously this comes to this uh, will lead to a broader discussion hopefully with all of you after you see it but Baldwin remembers going to the movies when he was younger and uh, seeing movies like Stagecoach from the 1930s and Dance Fools Dance with Joan Crawford and it's heroes like it's it's an entire chapter in the film where he is in search of heroes yeah I think that's a very interesting theme to have in uh, in I Am Not Your Negro, because in his during his search for heroes, at some point, Baldwin realizes that he is a black man in America. Yep. Therefore, people like John Wayne will never... He, they never would support him on, on camera. Yeah, jo- John Wayne killing the Indians, he says, is like 
John Wayne killing him. Exactly. And that that's the, that's the comparison he makes. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting because at some point he also references a film where you have Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis, who are two um, escaped convicts and are about to jump on the train to their freedom. And freedom means very different things to Tony Curtis, the white escapee, and uh, Sidney Poitier, the black man. Yeah. And at some point, Tony Curtis slips and falls, and Poitier follows him. And in that tiny scene of that film, all of a sudden, Baldwin goes, white people were cheering for Sidney Poitier for going after Curtis. Black people, on the other hand, could not understand Poitier's decision yes. to go after him because it means slavery, imprisonment, and freedom mean very different things to these two people, mm. to think, these two races. I think there are... There are so many things you can talk about with this film. And, yeah. And there are so many... You, I think you could probably watch it ten times and come out feeling completely different about different issues. And I think it makes you really aware of of your own sort of opinions and, and where, where you're coming from and yeah. inadequacies and, and things like that. And I think that that's the real strength of the film and yet it's only it's only 90 minutes long yeah it's really yeah. and but the the way it's chaptered and the way it uses Baldwin's voice throughout and the interviews throughout I think gives it a real pace and gives you mm. keeps you thinking throughout that at the end of the film I sat there for about 10-15 minutes and couldn't move because I had so many thoughts going on in my head I just thought I yeah. thought well there's this oh but then I remember this bit and it it's even as you're talking about it, and I'm sure when people come out and they've seen it with their friends or whoever, yeah. they come out and want to talk about it like this and want to have these big discussions and these big debates. And I think that's that's really why this film's been made, to mm -hmm. get people talking, get people yeah, thinking about these issues in a modern context. And that's why the, that's why the contemporary images are so crucial to this whole film yes. and actually show, you know, in some ways the film shows where we come from. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, but in other ways, it shows how how we how America in particular hasn't necessarily moved on. And I think yeah. that's that's so that's so important. Yeah. One final thought as well is this this film may seem like it is quite pessimistic. It it doesn't really instill you with a sense of pride or anything, but it does instill you with a sense of hope, and it does try and inspire you and inspire people to uh, come out with different opinions and even re-examine their views on race relations. So, yeah, it's, I think it's a 
It's a must see. Yeah, definitely, definitely, and that's out in uh, in cinemas today. And I know there's also um, some uh, special events going on and things like that. So if you can try and check them out and, and see what's going on, because I know there's because there's such discussion around this film there's lots of panel discussions and things like that we are now going to move on to our second film and interview and i'm going to let sam introduce this hi sorry i'm a bit uh hay fevery oh, so i'm a little no. bit i'll be a bit sniffly i'll try not to uh yeah so raw is a new french um well we use the word horror but uh we'll talk more about why that might not be the best word to use in a bit uh it's a new film by uh french director julia de cornell uh, very early in her career and this is about a young uh, vegetarian called Justine who goes to uh, veterinary, uh, veterinary university in France where after a kind of really brutal sort of hazing ritual um, where the students are forced to eat raw animal meat <laughs> she develops a taste for meat for the first time in her life and uh, eventually moves on to things other than animals Let's just say that. Yeah. This film's attracted some, not controversy, but uh, it's a premiere in, I believe it was Toronto. It uh, Two people fainted while watching this film. So it's kind of garnered this sort of word of mouth that this is the film that people are fainting while watching. Uh, and I spoke to uh, the director, writer and director, Julie de Cornell, a few weeks ago in London, and we talked about whether the film is a horror film or not. We talked about this whole uh, um, narrative about people fainting and watching it amongst many other things, so enjoy. Okay, and we're now delighted to be joined by uh, writer and director of Raw, Julia de Cornell. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So, um, I guess, where did the idea for Raw come from? Would be the first question. <laughs> why is it the first question? <laughs> yeah, but why, why is it the why first Why is it the first question? Uh, gives a bit of background, I suppose. And, uh, I mean, you know, it's such a unique story. Uh, I just want to know what kind of mind came up with that. <laughs> what kind of mind? But then I would have to tell you about my childhood or something. Uh, if, if you want to talk to me about your childhood, I'll <laughs> happily listen. <laughs> no, no, but it's, uh, you know, you don't come up, I mean, I personally did not come up with this like um, in the glimpse of an eye. It's like a continuous um, work around certain questions and around the bodies also, because I've been working around bodies for uh, the transformation of bodies for a long time now because I was already um, um, talking about this in my uh, school shorts it's a long yeah. time ago okay. and, um, and of course cannibalism tackled the su subject of bodies a lot obviously and about opening bodies and uh, actually bodies digesting bodies so it's all around that you know yeah. um, and also the thing is that I think cannibalism when you ask yourself the question, what is it to be human, which is the question that is at the center of everything I do, um, talking about cannibalism is interesting because of all the taboos of humanity, so with murder and incest, cannibalism is the only one that is um, treated like it doesn't exist. Mm. In movies or in general, when we talk about it, there is something like we call cannibals monsters or we would qualify them as inhuman. When you see cannibal, most cannibal movies are about tribes that are yeah. seen as they and they're an anonymous group. And it's like they're treated like aliens from outer space or zombies. Like they don't exist basically. Sure. Which is not the case with murderers mm -hmm. or with, in, a f in fewer movies, um, perpetrators of incest. Okay. With murderers and perpetrators, I mean, in movies or in series, they're always seen as human beings, 
horrible human beings, yeah. but they are sinning human beings. It's not the case with cannibals. Why? I think it's an interesting question, right? Yeah. What I talk. I told my uh, my producer. So why is it um, that we kick them out of humanity like this? Actually, I think now that the reason why we do is because it's too close to us. It's too close to us where, and that's why we want to see them from far. Because in our bodies, we are constantly reminded of one, our animality, in our desires, in our impulses and stuff like that. And two, of our dangerosity. Example, when you try to bite someone for fun, if mm -hmm. you want to try to bite the hand of someone. We used to do that a lot when we were kids. Sure, yeah. I haven't done it in a long time, but <laughs> I remember the sensation that it felt, you know. Like when you do that, you have this tickly sensation in the teeth. Okay. Because your body wants to go further. But your mind says no because mm. you know you're going to hurt that person and you don't want that. So you stop. But your body is clearly in contradiction. It's contradicting your mind. Yeah. He wants to go. And the fact that it's this uh, impulse is in us, I think it's pretty scary. Because somehow it's like your body is becoming autonomous. If your body is becoming autonomous, what does it make you as a human being? Right, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is where my story about bodies makes sense. Yes, definitely. You know? I'm getting something now. So like this sort of, um, almost like a, a fight between your body and your mind, this kind of tension. Your animality and your humanity. Yeah. Okay, so there's the tension there, that that's where the raw is, essentially comes from that kind of that it tension. It came from that reasoning. Okay. Mm. And um, you mentioned there that sort of cannibalism is this kind of um, almost unspoken about taboo. I mean, did you set out to really kind of break taboos with this film and really... Well, it's not about breaking taboos. It's from me, as, as long as my main questioning again is, what is it to be human? Then I'm not going to repress uh, the dark side of humanity. Mm. And if I had um, only a Disney uh, version of life in my head, I probably <laughs> would not make films. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's not very interesting to me. No. And I really don't think that anyone can grow up by repressing a part of them. And society certainly can't either. Yeah. So I think it's like by accepting um, our humanity in its totality that Ukraine can grow up. Mm, okay. and, uh, and that's why I think it's interesting also to question its ed edges. Yeah, mm. okay. So um, at the film's premiere in Toronto, there was this kind of uh, word began to spread of this film that was making people faint and causing this really kind of physical reaction. I mean, what, what were your thoughts on that when you started to hear these kind of rumours and these, the way the film's being talked about, that it's kind of having this physical effect on people? Uh, many things. One, the thing with the two people who fainted is true, because I say yeah. it because people think it was planted, but it was not. I was there. Uh, what became something else is afterwards. Afterwards, it snowballed on the, um, on the internet that my movie was like the goriest movie ever mm. made. Which is amazing because clearly people who write this have never seen a movie in their lives because they can <laughs> at least cite at least a hundred yeah. movies that are gorgeous than mine. Um, and that it was, yeah, so, you know, the whole barf bag thing. And like, honestly, for me, it's, I, I mean, as a director, there is uh, something that's a bit heartbreaking there because it doesn't do justice to my movie. My mm. movie is really not a bar fest, it's not a torture porn, it's no. not a shocker. There are three scenes that are hard to watch. So being reduced to a bar fest is a bit, you know. Yeah. So I don't think that there, I don't think that all publicity is good, good publicity. I really don't think that. But that, uh, again, uh, as a director, I'm saying this. Um, 
so that's uh, that's my reaction. And the, the the second thing the second thing is that I think it's a shame because some people might be scared to go see the movie where they actually could handle it. Yeah. And actually, I've met a lot of people um, uh, from audiences after Q and A telling me uh, I was afraid to see it, but actually. Uh, I really loved the movie. I really did not expect that, and I completely watched everything and everything. You know. Yeah. So um, and other people who actually want to see a torture porn and to see a gore fest are going to be disappointed because mm. this is what my movie is not. Certainly. Okay. So no one wins. No. <laughs> and uh, so the, the film's lead actress, uh, Garance Millier, you've worked with her before. Can you repeat her name just for uh, me? <laughs> I knew I knew, I knew I'd get it wrong. Garance Marillier. Oh, good. Marillier. Marillier. Okay. <laughs> what kind of experience was it working with her on this film, um, with someone you've same. known for so long now? Time. With Garros, we know each other very well. Okay. In real life, because she started on my first short when she was twelve, which was already a, a crossover impl- impl- implying some body horror, and um, mm. it was more towards comedy. It was uh, a bit lighter but still crossover with comedy, personal drama and body horror, just in the same vein. After which she was in my TV feature. Um, and so now this one, so the thing is that since we've worked a lot together, we've established onsets a very big um, um, amount of trust, which is amazing because when you have scenes that are very physical and did, indeed that are hard for her and for me mm. to shoot, when you trust each other, you know that you can set ambitions very high and that you can yeah. um, constantly push each other, you know, further. And um, and so, and somehow you're still in a you're still in a, in a security or in a safety zone, because she knows that I would never like do anything uh, to you take her out of the yeah. safety zone without telling her, sure. you know. And she, and I know that she can go very very far, and I know I can take her very very far. So you have really this thing that we we, we, we can we can really like go and hand in hand, um, taking risks, but that risks that are we yeah that we do together. You know, we're, yeah. That's really that's really good. That's uh, that's um, it it really means that we can really go have high ambitions for the scenes, which is really nice. And uh, I think it's mainly because we've known each other for a long time. It's not something that just happens like this. It's something sure. that is recrafted in time, you know. Okay. And um, and yeah, and so uh, yeah, so that's it. Okay. So there's um people are talking about the kind of more the cannibal elements of the film a lot. Um, but something that I found just as hard to watch was this kind of the peer pressure element of the film and the sort of the brutality of. Uh, of Justine's first week of, of being a student. Um, I mean, how was your first year as a student in compared to... Oh, I mean, I was Justine. in a hippie school. Film yeah. school is hippie school. It was okay. super cool. So there was none of this kind of uh, no. raiding the rooms, throwing stuff out the window. No, no. It was a bit more relaxed. I have imagination. Okay, excellent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so the word feminist has been used a lot to describe this film. I was wondering, do you view it yourself as a feminist film? But of course. Okay. For what reasons? Well, for many reasons. But for the first reason is that as a woman, I would be shooting against my own side yeah. if I said I wasn't a feminist. Right. right? Okay. So <laughs> and, um, and so obviously it shows in my movie because yeah. I did it. Uh, I think the main thing is that I really 
when I decided that my character was going to be female, mm -hmm. which was not always the case because as a screenwriter, I consider that I could project myself in any kind of characters. Of course, if some men can write some women parts, some women can surely write some men parts. Yeah. So at one point, uh, I, I like, you know, to uh, project myself in all the possibilities of my movie. So I thought, what age is it? What gender is it? Uh, what background does he or she have and stuff like that? And um, I was thinking once I decided that it was going to, you know, take place like, um, in the post-teen years or pre-adult years and stuff like that, with, that was implying a discovery of, um, of sexuality at this age roughly, I decided I think I have more to defend if I take a female character over a male character because I, I do think that the way um, female sexuality is, is portrayed nowadays on screens is um, never about sexuality actually. It's always very cerebral mm. uh, in the projection of um, of, uh, of the after. Did that make the good choice? Am I gonna pass for a slut? Is he gonna call me back? Things like that. And this in a, in a very victimized way, if you wish. And, and passive. I don't like that, because for me this is nothing about sex. There is nothing about sexuality for me. For me, sexuality is the body and, and the climax. It's your body aiming at climax. Yeah. This is what it is for all of us. Why would we deny that? This is what sexuality is. And, uh, and I'm thinking it's funny because it's some, not something I've seen a lot in the birth of sexuality in female characters. So I wanted to, um, to portray some uh, sexuality that was unapologetic and fully anchored in its own body and its own impulses, its own desires. Um, without thinking of the after, you know? Mm. And I think you start thinking of the after if you feel shame, but since she doesn't feel shame, she's no. not thinking about the after. Yeah. Right? She's just doing it. I think it was important to, I mean, for me, it was important to portray female sexual, sexuality like that. Second thing is that I think in terms of, um, of body again, I, I really tried to film the female body in a way that it's taken outside of its niche and that it's universal and that it can be relatable for everyone. Mm. Because most of the time I notice that male characters are, it's granted that they're relatable by everyone, but not female characters. When you write female characters, most of the time you're like, yeah, but you know, maybe it's only women that can understand, yeah. you know, and I think that's bullshit. As an audience and as a filmmaker, we should all be able to relate to any character. If I want you to love a giant rat, yeah. I should first love the giant rat, yeah. and then you should love the giant rat. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, this is something that for me is, and I don't understand why it's the, it's still the case with Timmy Bolt. So my, 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 for me, my strategy with this, and it's again about the bodies, is that I, I wanted to, um, to tackle the, the triviality of her physicality and to make it a relatable body in its intimacy, like its, its fluids, um, its gases, uh, it's all, all, all these things like blood and puke and, and pee and everything that we find gross, but that in the end are endearing because we all have that, mm. you know, we all have hair and yeah. stuff like that. And I think for me, this, this was a way to bring her as a, as a female character to universality. Okay, great. And. Uh I can see by your t-shirt, you're wearing an Edgar Allan Poe t-shirt, so I'm going to take it you're a, a horror fan in general? Uh, yes, but yeah. my movie is not a horror movie, but I am a horror fan. So, okay, you would say you would distance your film from the horror genre then? But do you find it scary? 
I don't know, I don't know about scary, but I would it's say... Disturbing. Yeah, maybe disturbing. For me, a horror movie is... The main thing is, like, if I write a horror movie, I think I would try to scare people. I mean, okay. as an audience, as a, as a horror fan, this is what I seek. Yeah. That's why I'm saying that. Okay. Throughout horror, other horror films, I've noticed that sort of... They're sometimes used to sort of tell stories of... Uh, like female coming of age, like Carrie the Exorcist, and then last year we had The Witch. And I was going to ask you if maybe you saw Raw as in sort of connection with those films. Uh, yeah, I mean, different ways, it's not the same, yeah. but uh, uh, Carrie, I did a re reference to the movie in my movie just because I thought that everyone who has just seen a few movies in their life would make, would anticipate, you know. Uh, this reference to happen because of the premise of the movie. So I thought I'm gonna do it myself. Yeah. Blood of showers. So that it's a wink, you know, and sure. then we can move on. But it's just Carrie is not necessarily my favorite movie ever, even though I like it. But yeah. for me, it's a supernatural movie, so it's not connected to my movie. For me, what's important with my movie is that there is absolutely no supernatural in it, no. and we're talking about real people. Yeah. Um, the thing with the witch, I love uh, the witch. I think, by the way, it's brilliant. It's really again, I wouldn't call it a horror movie. Personally. Okay. Okay. Uh, a genre movie for sure. Yeah. But not a horror movie. But um, it's definitely a family drama, mm. a personal identity and a family drama, uh, and very, very well portrayed. Um, I do f relate to uh, this movie, but to this generation more generally, that is now uh, trying to, like me, I think, because that's what I try to do as well, to um, break down the boundaries between auteur and genre. Okay. Because you know, usually people tend to think that genre movies or horror movies are not deep. Mm. You know, when that yeah. they're just like, uh, yeah, flicks, yeah. if you wish. Um, I do believe that a lot of horror movies are incredibly deep and that uh, I aim to do that. And I do feel that there is a generation with the guy who did The Witch, the guy who did Fellows, with Annalim Amirpour, Karim Kuzama, yeah. um, Jennifer Bent. Uh, so many that I forget about, and I'm sorry, Lucilla Tirelovich in France, that there are people who believe in genre as a legitimate way of expression, and a smart one, and a deep one, and I really, really hope that, um, again, as usual, that this is not a trend, and that we'll see more and more of these directors and, and other directors. Excellent. Judith Cornell, thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, something really interesting she said in the interview was that um, she didn't consider Raw a horror film um, because uh, it's not, for her, she said, it's not supernatural, there are no jump scares, and the the sort of gore, gory aspects and the cannibal aspects aren't there to be sensationalised. Mm. Um, and I think to an extent I agree that it's not it's not there to make people feel sick, it's not there to scare people, it's not there to make people go oh god like in the way that hostile is or yeah. sore is um, but at the same time I, I, I would consider it a horror I think that it's not a clear cut horror and it's definitely because there is you can't escape the whole it is disgusting at times yeah. the cannibal stuff well, um, what do you think that adds to the film the what do you, yeah what do you what, 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 why do you think that's in there well I think it's it's a very it's a quite difficult film to read because it's not really clear why this happens to yeah. her. It's not like it. I, mean, I think I think 
I think some people will go and see this film and expect it to be some sort of curse or some sort of infection yeah. or that she's mm. turning into a zombie or a werewolf or something and it's not that it's just about I mean you could read it as sort of um, going to university and your personality changing in dramatic ways right, yeah. and yeah. exploring exploring your body exploring the physicality that you haven't been able to do when you live at home with your parents things like that um, I think it 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 could be a I mean there's definitely a feminist vein through this film mm-hmm. and Decorna said so herself um, the sort of female taking control of her body I think is definitely is definitely there in the film um, but at the same time you know it is unsettling at times um, and the music's really great and definitely feels like it's from a horror film uh, and I think just in the way the film's been marketed I think it's absolutely been marketed as a horror film Yeah. but it's not it's not the kind of horror film that people who saw I don't know The Conjuring 2 would necessarily run out and see this is more for fans of The Witch or fans of It Follows and I bring up the, I'll, I'll probably bring up The Witch a few times in this review because it's out roughly at the same time of year as The Witch. I yeah. think they're kind of going for that kind of market. Um, and I think that's a really good decision because this is the latest in a long line of cause kind of art house horror films. So we kind of, a little bit, we had it earlier, a few years ago, It Follows. Last year we had The Witch and Goodbye yeah, Mummy. There seems to be a renaissance yeah, with that. Definitely. And we, um, Eyes of My Mother is a film coming out in a few months' time that seems to kind of fit in that vein of this kind of pseudo-feminist art house horror um, and it's a really interesting movement and I'm really excited to see where it goes and Raw is uh, I think a really nice addition to that um, so if if you are um, squeamish there is definitely stuff there that is going to put you is going to make you feel uneasy mm-hmm. but don't think of this as any kind of torture porn um, because I mean sometimes the cannibal stuff the cannibal scenes there's a there's one scene in particular that is the scene that made people faint, and I did go, ooh, in my seat. Does it feel sc- gratuitous at all? No, it never feels gratuitous, and at times... At did times, you make that noise? I did. <laughs> right, okay. I think a lot of people went, shh. Yeah, oh. I bet. Um, sometimes it's... <clears throat> sometimes it is, pla- is, is there to be a bit disturbing and unsettling. Sometimes I think it's almost played for laughs at times. Mm-hmm. The sort of... Um, ridiculousness of it and how this is so weird that this is happening and no one seems to be reacting in a way that you'd think people would react to that um, <clears throat> and other times it's kind of very matter of fact that this is happening so it has a, a very interesting tone that is maybe the reason why De Cornell doesn't outwardly say this is definitely a horror film because mm. it's not there to scare people as such um, something that's really interesting Something else that I really um, was kind of surprised at is um, that. So it's all. I think the majority of the film is that the first week of uni for Justine, and it looks like a really, really tough place to be. Um, so there's this kind of the hazing goes on, and like the older students, kind of. There's on the earlier scenes. Um, there's kind of like a raid from the older students that burst in, take all the possessions, and drag them in like in their underwear to this nightclub. And they have to stay there the whole night, and just things like that happen. And it's kind of like you know you hear these uh, legendary stories about sports teams. Uh, what are they called? The um, initiations. Initiations. Yeah. yeah, it's playing with that. And Sam, you know, we did initiations when the podcast first started. <laughs> we had to sit in the radio studio and review every Nicolas Cage film. <laughs> 
<laughs> including what was what was the latest one there, see? You know what? I do not know the title, but <laughs> uh, I'm straight to HMV. Let's not mention it. Let's not mention it. Mention it. Let's, let's not, not mention, mention it. She <laughs> um, doesn't want to. <laughs> I mean, it is slightly exaggerated, that hazing stuff, yeah. but it definitely rang true from the stories I've read and the things I've seen, and it is quite horrible. Um, and because she's kind of, she's a slightly shyer girl, she doesn't really like going out so much, the lead character. Um, but uh, yeah, so that, that the horror almost comes from that as much as it does the um, the cannibal stuff for me. And in a way, her turning into sort of a cannibal is, is almost her empowering herself against this kind of yeah. wave of peer pressure. Uh, so the lead actress is Garance Merillier. I think I've pronounced that right. Um, she's absolutely fantastic and she's pretty much, not just in every scene, but almost in every single shot in the way that of Mia Farrow in Rosemary's Baby is in every single corner of that film yeah. um, and See, that sorry, that's not an easy thing for a young actress to do I think uh, especially in a film of this nature so I think full props to her she really delivered that yeah this I as you were as you were reviewing mm. uh, this film I had so many titles pop into my head so yeah. is this movie does borrow a lot from horror uh, horror, classic horror cinema because I had in my head I had Repulsion yeah. uh, for example and Rosemary's Baby uh, and then then I had really classic French horror film um, cinema yeah. in my head like uh, Jacques Tourneur's The Cat People right. where a woman actually turns turns into a panther and does that does Rob borrow from these I, kind of traditions? I think not quite Okay. I think um, as De Connor said in the interview she's for her it's not necessarily a horror film as such but uh, like I said for me there are times when I felt like I was watching a horror film so it's a difficult thing to yeah. but yeah I, I definitely get uh, Repulsion was definitely there for me um, and there's even a, there's, there's sort of a sort of Ginger Snaps have you seen Ginger Excellent. Snaps? Excellent yeah, yeah, yeah. The were- the, are they sisters in Ginger Snaps? They are yeah, yeah. yeah. Werewolves Werewolves yeah and there's definitely there's a, kind of, there's a, there's a really interesting relationship between uh, the, lead actri- the lead character and her sister in the film that f- reminded me a lot of Ginger Snaps. Okay. So I think the references are there, but I think they're more that like us as horror fans have thrown them onto the film rather than De Cornell put them in there. There's a lot of Carrie as well. Um, right, there's a lot of blood-soaked young women in the film, and immediately you think of Carrie, mm-hmm. as she said in the interview. Um, so yeah, that is out today, April seventh. Um, I think it's going to get a yeah fairly uh, good release um it's again it's going for that same audience as the witch which actually did r- really well considering its budget um so do check out raw um i think if i because i did i did really like i'd really enjoyed the film a lot if i maybe had one slight criticism it would perhaps be that the ending didn't quite pack the punch i think it's intended to mm-hmm. but the rest of the f- uh, it's it's a good ending still and i think the rest of the film is 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 good enough that that didn't um, may the experience in any way cool. so that's raw excellent cheers for that thank you we're two reviews down <laughs> two interviews down and now we're going to move on to our preview uh, and Ursi is going to lead this we are going to be talking about Neruda uh, which is the new Pablo Lorraine film Ursi, uh, tell us a bit about it alright so Neruda stars Gael Garcia Bernal and Luis Nieco uh, Bernal plays a policeman called Oscar Paluchonot who is charged with tracking down Pablo Neruda, who um, uh, has just been ousted from government, uh, from the government of Chile, 
and is now living in exile and is toying with his policeman in a cat and mouse uh, uh, kind of situation. And uh, from Larraine's own words, this is not this is not your real biopic. This is not don't don't expect a history lesson from Neruda, because the titular character himself is a poet, and therefore uh, this this film is in effect a false documentary. So it bases a lot of his uh, a lot of the scenes are based on um, Neruda's own prose, and. Yeah, it's uh, it looks like a great film, and Larine, it's not for Larine's first foray into um, Chilean history, uh, as he's quite involved. His last, um, his first three films, barring his actual first one, Huga, um, were Tony Manero, uh, Postmortem, and No, which were all about uh, the Pinochet dictatorship, and then No is the end of that I mean it's Larry you must you must have seen some of his work uh, mostly Jackie starring Natalie Portman yeah that which was a big, was re- re- yeah. big release uh, early this year and we uh, if you do want to listen back we did a whole podcast about it yeah. um, uh, and really interesting film really absolutely and I think always with Lorraine you get really interesting casting as well like in terms of in terms of he he selects the right people for the right roles and I think a lot of directors don't seem to do that yeah. necessarily all the time and I think he definitely does that yeah uh, although I would say as well Nat, um, the, Jackie is his first English language yeah, film yeah. so previously he's he kind of stuck to his um, to his native country and he he kind he he wants to narrate the history of Chile during the Neruda takes place in the 40s and then the the, the Pinochet no to Pinochet trilogy, I would say, takes place in, um, oh God, the 70s? Yes. Let's go with that. Forgive me if my history is a bit hazy there. And so he wants to he wants to present the history of his country in a kind of novel and really interesting way. And I think Neruda is definitely a good addition to this to this objective uh, being a document being a, a biopic that's based on poetry rather than historical fact. So, yeah, it's on Curzon Home Cinema f- as of today, and I um, I thoroughly recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. So that's Neruda, as Ursi said. Uh, it's out on Curzon Home Cinema today. Uh, please do check it out. Curzon Home Cinema recommends. What have we got this week? Well, there's the Pablo Lorraine collection. Uh, so this has... Fuga, Tony Monero, Postmortem, No, Gloria, The Club, Nasty Baby, and Neruda. That is a lot. That is a lot. lot. Um, Yeah, check through his back catalogue. His next film, by the way, is a a drama called The True American, starring Tom Hardy, about Islamophobia following 9-11. Oh, is he Whoa. is he confirmed to do that now? Yeah, according oh, to right. an online source. I didn't know that he uh I didn't know that he was signed up to that. <coughs> yeah, great. it was originally Catherine Bigelow. That's great. Um but Tom Hardy's stayed with it. Tom Hardy's been attached to this since twenty fourteen. Okay, but someone else has and now yeah, and now Pablo Lorraine is, is tackling that. And I think it's quite interesting that he's um so after he did Jackie and now he's doing this, he's kind of really going through the Americana mm. yeah. American political scene, but hopefully not just doing the kind of America stuff we've seen, for, yeah, for film. Well, I think I think interestingly with with Jackie, 
he it's interesting comparing it to something like I'm Not Your Negro in terms of Raul Raul Peck moved away from America he was not originally from America yeah. the director and then came back and moved away and then came back and I think it's interesting having these perspective of sort of America um, of yeah. American people particularly with Jackie being such an iconic image yeah. and an iconic woman uh, and sort of an American sweetheart in many ways uh, I think it's really fascinating having directors not directly from America sure. directing yeah. these films because I think they bring a, um, a different perspective and they bring yeah. they bring something different to it. And I yeah, think like it's an great outsider to, looking yeah. in, and it's yeah. great to see him doing something like uh, something like Neruda and still keeping that and keeping that keeping what sort of made him what he is today Absolutely. I guess in many ways uh, so you had a couple of uh, films you wanted to recommend from the collection from the collection yep. yeah uh, so t- Tony Manero is uh, an excellent introduction to Larin's filmmaking I find it's um, it's about a man in the middle of the Pinochet dictatorship who competes in Tony Manero lookalike contests so a lot of Bee Gees in the middle of the Pinochet dictatorship, which is a very unsettling sight. And uh, most recently, I also watched Postmortem, which is uh, a love story, a very unconventional love story, uh, about a civil ser- servant at the morgue who uh, is in love with a cabaret dancer, and he expresses his love, and then the day right the day after is the Pinochet coup and he has to deal with the amount of dead bodies coming into the morgue was trying to court sorry this uh, this cabaret dancer whose fam whose whole family has been kidnapped by the military junta and it's it's fantastic by the by the end of this movie i was watching with my mouth wide open at a complete disbelief of what I was actually looking at because it's it's just masterclass filmmaking from Larine. Excellent. Uh, and uh, finally, from uh, Curzon Home Cinema, I recommend. Uh, if you've never been on Curzon Home Cinema, because we mention it every week, but if you've never been on there and just want to have a look around, uh, there is actually a welcome co- uh, collection on there. Um, all you need to do is sign up. Uh, you get offered uh, one of the films to rent. Uh, I'd recommend Cartel Land. Uh, really interesting. Give it a watch. Uh, try home cinema. You can try it on laptops, uh, smart TVs. I think you can probably tablets. You can probably even get it on your phone. I imagine. So, uh, so yeah, definitely try out cousin home cinema. See what it's like. Uh, this week in cinemas, uh, we've got Terence Davis's uh, new film, A Quiet Passion, surrounding Emily Dickinson, and it stars uh, Cynthia Nixon in maybe a career. You know, changing role. It, mm. you know, I didn't. I didn't even recognise her. The uh, Miranda. She was from Sex and the City. She I was believe. Miranda from yeah. Sex Miranda and the City. Yeah. Thanks, for, think, thanks for clearing that yeah. up, <laughs> Sam. <laughs> Just, uh, I'll also quickly plug on Cousin Home Cinema. Graduation is up there. Oh, yeah. And in last week's podcast, uh, we uh, had an interview with the film's director, director and producer Christian Mungju. Uh, so do check that out yeah, listen back to that yeah. as well it's really interesting yeah. excellent so that is all we have time for from this absolutely that's bumper. all really that's all we've got time <laughs> for from that absolutely it's got dark outside since we've been re- <laughs> recording it's goodbye from first name only Sam goodbye first name only Harry it's goodbye from first name only Ursie goodbye to both of you <laughs> <laughs> it's goodbye from me goodbye <laughs> <laughs>